everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. And I also should say Copenhagen, Denmark. I saw some stats recently. Denmark has our second most frequently listened to country. And Copenhagen, I think, is the city number four after New York, Brooklyn, and Minneapolis. Anyway, welcome, everyone. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, like this evening, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe. What makes that New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Some of our past shows have included a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York. Uh, We had a show on the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, which until 1898 was its own city. Uh, We've had a show on the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and bicycling in New York. In the future, we're likely to journey to some of the city's parks or our great subway system, the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center, although tonight we're going to be talking about one or two amazing pieces of architecture in the city. And after the broadcast, the next day, each show is available on podcast, uh, including on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast sites. Today we're journeying to a special neighborhood, one that for some people seems a little nondescript, but as a neighborhood has its special vibe and a very, very unique history. That is Turtle Bay. Turtle Bay, for those who don't know it, it starts from about 42nd Street and goes up to the 50s, and it's on the east side of Manhattan. My first guest is a regular to Rediscovering New York, who's also our special consultant, David Griven. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. David is founder and CEO of a company called Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David has a series called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of another company called Nascent New York. Uh, and is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. I have been honored to go on some of those. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. And a hearty welcome to David Griffin. David, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Glad to be here. Uh, how did you get involved in, um, some of our listeners have heard past episodes, but we our listenership is increasing, and I want to make sure everyone knows what your background is. How did um, you get interested in architectural history and in New York history particularly? Well, I was always interested in old buildings as a child. And actually, myself, my brother, and my two sisters were the first ever uh, paid docents at a New York State historic site, Old Bethpage out on Long Island. The Old Bethpage Village Restoration used to have an annual fair, and we would dress up as costumed interpreters, uh, children of the period of the 1850s, 1860s, and demonstrate the toys and other pastimes and kind of pursuits of children of that age. As I grew older, I went to Vassar College, and I had a double major in English and art history with a focus on architecture. I was always interested in writing about architecture, and then as 
Um, 2008 rolled around and a lot of freelance work dried up because of the economy. I decided to basically move into real estate because I realized that a lot of people working in real estate had wonderful buildings they were working with, but not necessarily a lot of knowledge about the historical details that surrounded them. Well, we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about landmark branding uh, a little bit later in our in our interview. Um, to Turtle Bay, uh, how did this part of Manhattan come to be called Turtle Bay? Was there a large turtle colony or something to that e- effect? Enormous turtle colony. No, actually, um, a Turtle Bay was named in the very early 17th century for the resemblance of a cove in the East River that it bordered. The cove was uh, the shape of a knife or durtel in Dutch. So that became anglicized over the years to turtle. Uh, the cove no longer exists. It was filled in sometime after the Civil War, so we uh, can't observe it. But that was that was the originator of the the name of Turtle Bay. Hmm. And like uh, some parts of Manhattan, there were farms and um, uh, homesteads. Uh, and actually, this was one of the uh, unusual places in Manhattan where uh, there was a land grant that was actually given to Englishmen by the then Dutch governor. We're not sure why, but uh, in this particular part. but Yes, in 1639, two English settlers were granted by the then Dutch governor a 40-acre farm. Uh, the estate covered the land roughly between 43rd Street, uh, just in the middle of where uh, the Chrysler building now stands, to around 58th Street, and was bordered also roughly more or less by 3rd Avenue to the river. The approximate boundaries of the neighborhood today. Mm-hmm, exactly. I wonder if they had turtles. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, the New York City grid was established in 1811. Um, when were the streets in Turtle Bay actually laid out? Uh, until the early 19th century, the area was pastoral. Uh, as we've observed, it was the location of a, a large mm-hmm. farm. There were also several country villas, which were positioned to take in views of the river, which was you know very picturesque and forested at that time. Uh, the grid system spread steadily north from 1811 onwards. It reached the Turtle Bay area probably sometime around the 1830s or so. And the uh, area was developed with townhouses from that point on, some of which do still stand today. Hmm. Well, I want to uh, make a note. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who uh, many mm. people know as having written The Raven as well as other things, uh, he lived in a lot of places. He's buried in Baltimore. He lived for a short time on what became the Upper West Side, but he also lived uh, in Turtle Bay, actually up, I think, where the 40s are now. And uh, in his lifetime, he bemoaned the changing landscape that the urbanization was bringing to the area, and I think it would have been in the early 1840s. When were the first buildings that we would recognize as urban dwellings, uh, when did they go up in the neighborhood? Probably uh, both before and immediately after the Civil War period uh, in terms of things like brownstones and the later tenement apartments that came to sort of dominate the area. Well, speaking of the Civil War, uh, there was a very violent event or events in New York City during the middle of the Civil War that that hit Turtle Bay especially hard. Um, What were the draft riots about in New York? Well, in 1863, there was an army recruitment office built for the Civil War that stood at the corner of 46th and 3rd Avenue. By that time, the grid had reached that far. Urbanization was apace, as they say. Uh, And the uh, draft act that was passed during that time period was really resented by the newest um, incoming wave of immigrants, uh, particularly Irish immigrants who didn't feel this was their battle. They didn't think that they had anything to do with this civil war. They had come to America to kind of flee what they saw, obviously, as things like famine and persecution in their native land. 
and they struck out against what they felt was a kind of a, a tyranny of, of them since they had no resources to fight this back or counter it legally. Um, this grew into a major uh, series of riots, actually the largest civil disturbance in the United States uh, were the New York draft riots. Uh, the Army Recruitment Office in Turtle Bay was attacked and burned to the ground, and the neighborhood itself was really nearly leveled by looting and arson. Whole blocks burned. Um, the, the portion of the city that Turtle Bay is, now is was probably hit the hardest, although fires happened on Lower Broadway, Herald Square, and around Gramercy Park. Um, the, the New York Herald office was, was uh, partially destroyed. There was a, an orphanage that stood at 42nd and 5th that was burned to the ground. Um, there was a lot of damage done to the city, but Turtle Bay was almost burned to the ground. Yeah, so. wow. uh, how long did the riots go on for? And, and what was it that had them stop? I think it was just a few days, and finally, the you know the military came out. Uh, there was there were heavy rains during the latter part of the riots that also sort of caused people to sort of lose interest in being outside. And I think also you had the, the sense that people were really exhausted by it all. This was a, a very traumatic event, and um, you know uh, it was really kind of a very damaging episode mm -hmm. in New York's history. Uh, I will say that New York City did rally to the Union cause, and they also made a lot of um, reparations to people, particularly African-American people who were caught up in the violence. A lot of African-American people were actually killed during the draft riots. Mm. And there was a lot of outreach to that community to try and help these people kind of find new places to live and make reparations for damages and injuries mm. that were sustained heavily by that community. Well, New York was actually, in the beginning of the Civil War, was not a hotbed of um, keeping the Union together. In fact, I believe, even though New York State went for Lincoln in 1860, yeah. the city did not. And uh, uh, I think that Lincoln actually, he had sent uh, troops up from Washington or from maybe Pennsylvania, I forgot where, but that's mm. what also helped put down, yeah. put down the, mm. the riots. Mm. And New York turned into an armed camp for, for a short time. Um, after the Civil War, the neighborhood changed and for a while took on a very different tone than that of a residential neighborhood. Yes, uh, it was sort of blighted, I think, by the, the draft riots. Um, it took on a very industrial character. Power plants and factories began to kind of crowd the river. Uh, all of a sudden, you had gas works popping up, slaughterhouses. There were vast train yards, uh, coal yards, breweries, cattle pens. Well, the breweries we wouldn't have minded so much, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> But there were also, you know, numerous places, brothels, houses of ill repute, crime dens, et cetera, and so forth. Um, the air quality during that time period was very, very bad. It was reported at one point to be the worst in the city with over 150 tons of soot falling annually over a square mile. Wow. Um, the old villas and mansions crumbled away. Tenements replaced townhouses. Um, elevated trains made their way north on 3rd and 2nd Avenues. You had the elevated trains. That intensified development, of course, because it opened up you know, more um, sort of sense of commuters or people being able to kind of reach other places in the city. But it also cast those avenues into permanent shadow. And the entire district gained, for a while, uh, an actually very evil reputation. 
almost the way that, you know, in the 1970s, people would have seen Times Square or that people prior to this period would have seen the Bowery. Was it evil? Was it known as an evil place because of the physical conditions? Was it evil because of the crime? Was it evil just because of immoral businesses? I think it was a combination of those things. It was seen as a very shady place. There were a lot of, you know, dock workers. There was a lot of uh, rough language, rough people, as it were. Uh, There was a lot of pollution. It was impossible to keep anything clean. And the whole place was just sort of seen as kind of desiccated and falling into decay. Hmm. And one thing about the L trains going up is that most of us think of elevated trains as being clean transportation. The L's in Manhattan weren't electrified until just before the turn of the last century. Mm, So they were pulled by steam locomotives, which belched all that crap into the air. And sparks and soot were always raining down on you, et cetera, and so forth. There are stories of people, uh, ladies with their parasols and flames, um, because of sparks coming down off of some of the elevated trains. And then you'd have other um, accidents where people would be falling to their deaths off crowded platforms. It was not a safe uh, mode of travel by any means. Oh, gosh. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit about when the L came down a little bit later uh, in the segment. Um, but fast-forwarding a little bit after the turn of the century, there was a bit of private and small-scale development that went on in the early 20th century, right in Turtle Bay. Yes, uh, in the early 20th century, portions of Turtle Bay underwent what you could call an early form of gentrification. Um, Many of the tenements were stabilized and restored partially in the 1920s. Uh, There are many, many very pleasant blocks, particularly between, uh, I'd say, the 3rd and 2nd, 2nd and 1st Avenues, north of 48th Street that still sort of have a a nice kind of tree-lined character, and all of that was kind of done in the early 20th century. Um, The heiress Charlotte Honowell Soren uh, developed a very notable project known as Turtle Bay Gardens. She bought uh, 20 houses on 49th and 48th Streets and rebuilt them so the service rooms faced the streets and then created an enormous shared garden in the center of the block that the houses now faced. She then sold the houses to her friends. This became a very, very fashionable address in the 20s and afterwards, and residents of Turtle Bay Gardens have included Tyrone Powers, Catherine Hepburn, Ruth Gordon, Ricardo Montalban, Stephen Sondheim, the great conductor Leopold Stokowski, publisher Henry Luce, and the author E.B. White, who wrote and published the well-known children's book Charlotte's Web while living there. Uh, Turtle Bay Gardens became a historic district in 1966, one of the very earliest in New York. Wow. And uh, one of the streets, I think 48th Street, is called Catherine Hepburn Way. I think it's 48th Street. Yeah, yes. I believe you're right. Yeah. And there's also a copy of a very famous uh, fountain in that garden. Uh, fountain from Rome. I forgot what it's called. but It's it. not the one from the uh, the one in Florence. Maybe Florence. Turtle, yes, turtle, I stand corrected. The turtle fountain? Yes. It would yes. be the fountain right, of the of four course, turtles. Of course. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, so. listeners, I got that one wrong. I, Bernini, I think. But, uh-huh. yeah, don't quote me on it. Well, Too <laughs> late. it wasn't Bernini, it was something just as beautiful. Um, on that note, we're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with David Griffin and our talk on Turtle Bay. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. 
Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Rediscovering New York. I'm Jeff Goodman, and my first guest is David Griffin from Landmark Branding. David, tell us a little bit about your business and what you do. Sure thing. So I work with brokers, uh, developers, architects, um, engineers, designers, and interior designers uh, to create marketing for their businesses. My focus is on historic and architecturally significant buildings. Uh, I work with new builds as well as historic and landmark properties. And I do everything from VIP tours, um, event series, website copy, uh, podcasts, um, radio shows such as this one. Um, interviews with people. I write, as you say, for several magazines, including Brownstoner. I'm developing an article on what is the largest, one of the largest brownstone houses intact in Brooklyn for Brownstoner. Hope that should be coming out very shortly. And um, yeah, just sort of uh, assist people with everything uh, to do with marketing and PR for the real estate community. And if people want to get in t- find out more about your business or get in touch with you, uh, they can visit my website at uh, www.landmarkbranding.com. Uh, I also have a blog called Every Building on Fifth, which is a picture of and a short history of every single building on Fifth Avenue. Uh, just completed that a couple of weeks ago, actually. 600 posts over 540 buildings. And what's the website for that? It's uh, that's also it's at the landmark.branding.com. So uh, just click on the blog and all of that will be there as well. Well, I'll have to check that out. I live a block away. Okay. Not downtown, way uptown, but still yeah, right. a block away <laughs> between Madison and Park. Um, Getting back to uh, Turtle Bay and more unseemly part of it, um, there was a particularly squalid part of the neighborhood near the foot of 42nd Street in the East River. What was Goat Hill? Uh, Goat Hill was, uh, as you say, a particularly squalid part of Turtle Bay. Um, We're not sure why it had that name. It might have been just due to the fact that goats were sort of identified with the forces of darkness. Uh, literally sort of like calling it the devil's, you know, creek, et cetera, and so ah, forth. Okay. So um, there is some thought that at one point there had been a goat farm there, but that would seem to have predated that district by quite uh, quite a, a long time period. So it was probably a sort of remark against the, um, the current inhabitants and their uh, various peccadillos, shall we say. Ah, okay. Well, that didn't last too long because uh, something got replaced, something replaced, something very substantial. Yes, and beginning in 1927, Goat Hill was replaced with a development now known as Tudor City. And Tudor City is uh, very interesting because it's sort of a fantasy of Tudor architecture, as uh, many people know. And uh, the buildings are uh, 15, 20, 30 stories tall. Uh, This was the first residential skyscraper development in the world. And really, uh, 
relatively few people know about it or think to visit it. I absolutely recommend it for anybody who happens to be in Midtown and wants to just take a nice walk in a, in a pleasant area because the elevated gardens, parks, bridges, staircases, fountains, and everything that surround those buildings really are remarkable. It really is on a par with Rockefeller Center in terms of the incorporation of public spaces. And the Tudor architecture was intended to lure back suburbanites. Suburbanites during that time period, the 1920s, were accustomed to mock Tudor and mock Elizabethan architecture as a, a hallmark of suburban stability, oh, right. Scarsdale, yes. <clears throat> Bronxville. So what they did was they said, hey, you don't need to move out to those places in order to have half-timbered nonsense. We'll give you half-timbered nonsense in the sky. And uh, they actually crowned one of the buildings, Windsor Terrace, with what is uh, probably the grandest architectural penthouse in the world. World, um, a 50-room Jacobian revival mansion uh, surrounded by gardens. It's actually, I think, six separate apartments kind of disguised as a single quote-unquote country house, but a country house literally on top of the 25th floor of one of these complexes. Wow, wow. Uh, one inter interesting thing about Tudor City uh, is that hardly any of its windows face east toward the river, uh, sacrificing what today we would think were very desirable and valuable river views. Why didn't... Uh... Because at that point, there were still the power plants to contend with, and those were only taken down after Tudor City was built. Ah, okay. Um, we're going to talk about another interesting part of Turtle Bay in a couple of minutes, but first I want to talk about Beekman Place. Uh, that was the famous street of famed anti-mame. Yes. Uh, it's kind of up on a bluff from the East River. <clears throat> For those people who don't know it, it's only two blocks long. It goes from 49th Street, or actually it's called Mitchell Place at that point on the grid, uh, to 51st Street. What was there before the street that we see today? Well, the famous Beekman mm -hmm. Estate was there, actually. I believe it was called Pleasant Hill, also known as Beekman House or the mm -hmm. Beekman Mansion. And uh, that was built in 1765, and the Beekman family lived there very happily until a cholera epidemic of the early 1850s forced them out, and they actually fled the area. The entire area had become infected with the cholera mosquito. Um, the house stood vacant until 1874 when it was unfortunately finally taken down. Um, as I, I think uh, we've discussed, a portion of it does survive in the New York Historical Society. yes. Is it the dining room or the... It's the dining room. The dining it? room, and I think one of the bedrooms, too. Okay. Um, uh, there is a very notable piece of modernist urban architecture on Beekman Place, although you would not know it from the style of most of the buildings there. Yes. Um, in the 1950s, the architect Paul Rudolph, who was one of the great sort of uh, proponents of an architectural style that most people now call brutalism, although I think Rudolph would have had some issue with that as a term, modified a mansion at 23 Beekman Place into what is really arguably, I think, the city's best modernist house. Um, it is consists of a sort of a, a, a traditional-looking limestone base that holds several apartments that he rented out, and then his penthouse is perched on top of it in this amazing kind of steel cage, kind of almost like a bird cage looking structure with numerous balconies and outside staircases and perches and things of that nature. It's very vertiginous. Um, the house was landmarked in 2010. Um, it is currently owned by a architect couple who made some modifications to the interior to make it a little bit more up to code in terms of safety. Uh, Rudolph believes 
believed in staircases with no banisters, uh, balconies that kind of just soared out into nothing. There was actually a guest staying with Rudolph once who went out onto the, the breakfast balcony, which is an incredible sort of metal terrace that just kind of stuck out from the house as a terrace, little thin railing around it. It was made out of a mesh metal, so you could look down you know, through it, and there you are kind of perched over you know, FDR Drive in the East River. And he went back and he said to, to Rudolph, he said, you know, Paul, that's the most terrifying place I think I've ever eaten breakfast. And Rudolph evidently said to him, yeah, even I'm afraid to go out on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, Beekman Place is really an incredible uh, little district. It's very popular and very exclusive because it has almost no traffic. Hmm. You know, you have to actually be going there yes. for a reason to drive there. There's no through traffic. And you've got to come up 50th Street and then make a exactly. left or a right and then go to Mitchell Place or to 51st Street. So in Andy Mame, the hmm. novel by Patrick Dennis, Mame's address is 3 Beekman Place. Um, and socialites such as Huntington Hartford and Happy Rockefeller also live there, uh, including many people, of course, who are now in the diplomatic field. And Gloria Vanderbilt lives on, on uh, Beekman Place now. Um, speaking of a Beekman, let's talk about the Beekman Tower Hotel. It's a really, really beautiful building. Yes, constructed as the Panhellenic Tower in uh, 1928, one of the city's best Art Deco buildings, and again, a little bit off the beaten path because it is in Beekman Place. Uh, it was constructed as a women-only hotel. It was meant for graduates of the Seven Sisters schools who were looking for employment. So they would provide hotel services and rooms to these young ladies. There were chaperones available on the hotel. Uh, men were not permitted to enter the building. It was, you know, very much like sort of a, a Vassar Brynmoor dorm of the time, minus the passion pit, as it were. <laughs> and um, it was open to male guests in 1932 because obviously the Depression had sort of changed the playing field quite a bit and renamed the Beekman Tower. Um, the architects were cross and cross, and there are sculptural details designed by the great French designer um, René Paul Chamberlain. So there's uh, quite a reason to go and take a look at it. It's been recently restored as a conference center. It is a city landmark. I am not sure if the 29th floor bar is still open to the public in a general sense. Which it was wonderful. Be I've, been up, I've been up there yes, a few number I, of times. I, I loved it. The views up and down First Avenue were amazing. And it's one of the very few places in New York City that has both enclosed and outside balconies on all four sides of the building. So you could be outside on the north or south, or you could be in the enclosure to the east and the west. But the views of the East River and of the skyline in general were absolutely superb. Hmm. Well, one of the most famous architectural campuses in the world is in Turtle Bay, and one that's played such a vital role in world affairs. That's the United Nations. What was located there before the UN project was started? There was an enormous power plant and a series of slaughterhouses where the United <coughs> Nations uh, now stands. Uh, the Rockefellers acquired them as part of their investment in Tudor City. And in 1948, uh, the UN headquarters... Uh, took on the donation of that land from the Rockefeller family. And they began to, you know, they cleared the slaughterhouses, they cleared the part of the power plant, and they began to complete the buildings. Largely by 1952, the buildings are up. Um, the removal of the elevated trains, again, around the same time period, opened up the neighborhood for high-rise office buildings and condominiums that were concurrent with the UN headquarters construction. Uh, and a staircase was constructed connecting Tudor City to the rest of Turtle Bay. 
So it sort of helped link up the area a bit and open up um, the sort of the foot of 42nd Street to the actual river. Um, until the Third Avenue L was demolished in 1956, uh, of course, there was this huge blighted stretch of, of soot-covered darkness that had separated the, the neighborhood from Midtown. And the Second Avenue L had come Second down. Second Avenue L had right already come the Second down. World War. So by the time the Third Avenue L was taken down, all of a sudden Turtle Bay was sort of reconnected to the city in a very vital way. Hmm. Traditionally, on projects like as big as the UN, builders would run competitions and would choose an architect whose ideas impressed them or whose vision they were really inspired by. But designing the UN was done differently. Yes. Uh, to be um, you know, quite frank about it, obviously they decide to err on the, um, the side of diplomacy, to uh, <laughs> use a pun, if you will. Uh, and they thought instead of having a, a, a competition, they decided to commission a multinational team to collaborate on the design. So that way it wouldn't be seen that the United Nations belonged, quote-unquote, to any one national tradition of architecture. And, of course, what was built there was a, uh, a building in the style which was considered by many to be called the international style. Some people call it the Second Chicago School in America if it's based on the architecture of Ludwig Ms. van der Rohe and Skidmore Owings and Merrill. In this case, the architects were the American architect Wallace Harrison, who was named as director of planning, it being a New York site and a New York donor. Uh, and then there was a board of design consultants composed of architects from all around the world. Planners and engineers are nominated by member governments. So the board consisted of um, Andy Basoff of the Soviet Union, uh, Gaston Bonfort of Belgium, Ernest Cormier of Canada, uh, Le Corbusier of France, Liang Sulchain in China, Sven Markerlis in Sweden, Oscar Niemeyer in Brazil, Howard Robertson from the United Kingdom, uh, G.A. Solar in Australia, and Julio Villegemont in Uruguay. So after a lot of discussion, Harrison, who was coordinating meetings, determined that the design they were going to use was going to be based on Niemeyer's Project 32 and Le Corbusier's Project 23. And what they did was they kind of brought together different elements of those designs uh, and sort of traded off certain fortress-like sensibilities of Le Corbusier for what they really responded to. A lot of it was Niemeyer because he used a very, very open plan and he preserved a lot of garden and public space around the buildings. Well, before 9-11 uh, and all the, uh, the security situation, I remember frequently just walking up and strolling up and being able to go to the Rose Gardens on the riverside of the, yes. of the buildings. But that's, that, that's changed. Um, there was also something very unusual about the secreta Secretariat building when the United Nations went up. It was the only building that was really a rectangle, but that did not go east-west. It went north-south. And mm. so it was quite as striking as it would have been anyway. It was even more striking. Um, Okay. Uh, one thing I want to mention about Turtle Bay is my own little uh, sweet spot is uh, not that I have any Scandinavian heritage, but both the Norwegian and the Swedish Siemens churches are in Turtle Bay. I've actually been to both of them. The Swedish uh, Siemens church is in the form of Bible Society building uh, mm. uh, on 46th Street or 47th Street. Uh, and the Norwegian Siemens church, which had, been, which had been in Brooklyn, is now on East 52nd Street. And... Um, very interesting little uh, note about that is that in the basement is the Trigvali Art Gallery. Trigvali was the first Secretary General of the United Nations, and he hailed from Norway. 
Um, another great place to check out if you happen to be in the neighborhood is uh, also on 49th Street, just off of First Avenue, Japan Society, which is uh, the oldest Japanese cultural uh, organization in the United States and which hosts incredible um, sort of shows, both Japanese fine arts and decorative arts as well as performing arts. It's a place where one can see occasionally traditional Japanese theater and opera, classical music, as well as contemporary and ancient art from Japan. It's in a very beautiful modernist building that is one of the youngest buildings in New York to be landmarked. The building was actually built in 1971-1972 and is a New York City registered landmark. And that's on 49th Street just off of First Avenue. You know, so definitely, definitely worth a, a trip. It's one of the most enchanting cultural spaces, I think, in the whole city. You know, I'm a native New Yorker. Believe it or not, I have never been there. But on your recommendation, it's now on my short it list. It is. It's really incredible. So Turtle Bay is now the location of over 100 international missions. It is one of the largest diplomatic communities in the world outside of London, Washington, D.C., and Brussels. So uh, there's a lot, actually, of diversity in the neighborhood in terms of not just the people, of course, but things like restaurants, services, um, you know, languages spoken. It's, it really is a very international center. Mm. Well, great. David, thank you so much for being our first guest on this episode of Rediscovering New York. We have been speaking with David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Uh, when we come back, we will have our next guest, who is a little bit of a different uh, take on Turtle Bay and one whose family owns a business of a quintessential food item. You won't want to miss it. I'll be back in a moment. Thanks a lot, Jeff. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love... Or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering in New York is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But fear not, there is a really good one. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. And you can hear it live at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook. The name of our page is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Novel I know, but that's it, nevertheless. 
And you can also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one other note before we get to our second guest, when I am not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent in New York City where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. My second guest is Charles Wenzelberg. Uh, Charles has been involved in his family business, Essa Bagel, since he was 15 years old, learning the business from the previous generation. Along with his brother, sister, and cousins, he continues the family tradition of serving the highest quality original New York bagel. This is the first for our show. Charles started working at the original First Avenue store during high school and college, and then in 1993, he was instrumental in the development, building, opening, and the management of the current Third Avenue Essa Bagel store, which is in Turtle Bay. Essa Bagel is family-owned and operated and has been a staple in the community for over 40 years. Aaron Wenzelberg, with his sister and brother-in-law, Florence and Eugene Wilpin, opened Essa Bagel on First Avenue in the summer of 1976. That was down near Stytown, and have been serving award-winning bagels ever since, always using the finest and healthiest ingredients. Today, Essa Bagel is proud to continue serving this community and others with three locations. And it's my pleasure to welcome Charles Wenzelberg to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, Charles. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for having Essa Bagel on the show. Well, it's an honor to have uh, such an institution, especially with something as, as New York and noteworthy as bagels. Um, are you originally from New York? Uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And today, listening to David talk about the neighborhood that I've been in for like 25 years, I realize just how much a New Yorker I am by not noticing half the things <laughs> he has talked about. And not knowing. You know, one of the, in the walking tour series that I host... I always hear from people on my list saying, I live in that neighborhood and I don't know anything about it. So they come along and they learn things. And also we're so quick, we just walk by things, you know, in New York. And we just, so many of us just don't stop and look up and go, wow, that's really beautiful. Or I wonder what the history of that is. Um, your family, if not going into the quintessential New York business, you certainly went to an, into a business making and serving up what's really quintessentially <laughs> and iconically New York bagels and not just bagels but new york bagels what had your dad and his sister decide to open up a bagel business so um taking you back my father and his sister um, florence they had a donut shop in brooklyn that actually closed they didn't renew the lease because they were building a high school and they wanted to put in some fast food places so then my dad was out of work. They pooled some money together, found the place down on across from Stuyvesant, uh, Peter Cooper actually opened a business. And their father actually was from Austria, and he was he had a bakery in Harlem when he was alive. So it's this Austrian baking family. And they, my aunt's husband Eugene, his uncle, that's crazy, was part of the Bagel Union, and so Is they the Bagel Union. There, there was wow, a Bagel bakery. Union, and he um, gave him a recipe. And they decided to go into bagels and found a place on First Avenue. And it's, the First Avenue store is still going strong. Uh, it actually moved across the street, but it's um, serving that community. And it's um, a lot of luck and a lot of heart went into the business. And I think that's what, what keeps us going. Well, I, I'm going to digress for a second. I got to ask you this question. Um, what's the secret to a great New York bagel? Everybody from around the country says I have to take, well, not everybody, but some people say I have to take bagels back with me. We just don't get the same bagels in like South Florida, which is really very New York, you know, 
so is there a secret to making a great New York bagel? Well, there's definitely a secret, which I'm not going to tell you. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, the most important thing, which they, my, my family has always stressed, was getting the best quality ingredients, the highest quality. The, they have a, they've made a product that has no preservatives, has no sugar. It's all natural. And they've, they've been very consistent in, in their process, which is a hand-rolled bagel, and um, we continue that today. I mean, we started in 1976, and you, you're getting the exact same bagel today as you did in 1976. Wow. And full disclosure, I am a customer. <laughs> I've been on the Third Avenue store a number of times, especially between business appointments in Midtown. And I'll look forward to going in and, 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 and having bagels. And we'll look forward to seeing you. Um, Charles, some children decide not to go into the family business, but you, your sister, and cousins decided to stay in the family business. <laughs> Is there anything specifically about the nature of the bagel business or Turtle Bay and Peter Cooper that had you all stay in the family business, or was it more just uh, being in the family? What You know, it's funny. We, we all grew up um, uh, surrounded by first donuts and then bagels, and we, our family is very, very close, and it, it just made a lot of sense. My brother and brother-in-law have been in the business. My brother's been in the business, I think, since day one, 76. Um, I came in a couple of years later. I'm a little younger. And then um, later on, we opened the, the store in Turtle Bay. My sister just recently came into the store. She's at the First Avenue store, which is very interesting. She was a school teacher, the principal, and now she's running the business, which, which actually it, it, my aunt, who opened the original business, was a full-time school teacher. When she finished with school, would go to the bagel store on First Avenue and work there. And it was a family business. The, the, we could not have the store work um, unless we had commitment from the whole family. Hmm. Wow. And still you're in the business. And so everyone, so now my cousins are, are at the, my cousin Melanie's running the Third Avenue store. Uh, my cousin Candace was in the store with me when we first opened it. She's still involved now. We opened the store on 32nd Street. Um, <laughs> like I said, it's, it's a family business. Was the Turtle Bay store your second or third location? That was the second location. The first one, we kind of, the First Avenue store, we, we had developed a great following. Uh, the community really embraced us. We were very unique in the sense that we were one of the first ones to continuously bake bagels throughout the day. So there was constantly fresh bagels. A lot of bagel stores bake in the morning. Right. That's their process, and they whatever they have, they sell out. Or we, get it delivered in the morning from someplace else. Or if they're not making them at the location, get it delivered. So we kept that we kept that going. So it was hot, fresh bagels, and we became and just as it is now in first name, it's a it's a very um, community oriented. People come in, um, generations have come in. I'll see people I haven't seen in twenty years, twenty five years, and it, it's it's lovely to see that. But we kind of grew out of that space, so we opened up in Turtle Bay. We found my aunt and uncle found this location. They asked me to come along, help them open it up. Um, and why Turtle Bay, Charles? What was, was there anything particularly about the neighborhood that they said this is the place for our, our second store? I think, um, honestly, I think they found a really good location, and that's why. And the, in Turtle Bay, there's just so much. Um, the, there was residential going east, and there's all this in business right across the street, down the block, two blocks, three blocks. There was just a lot of potential, and there wasn't a real good bakery in that area. Hmm. And now there is. Well, there was one since 1993. 
Um, do you know if most of your customers who patronize the Turtle Bay store actually live in Turtle Bay, or do they are they people who do business? What what's the makeup of the, of the clientele? It's interesting. Over time, when we first opened, we had you know obviously a lot of business, a, a lot of commercial resident, uh, commercial establishments are around, and we cater and do whatnot. And on the weekends, we'd have a pretty substantial residential business because of the residents. But now we now it's just crazed with tourists. They, they, everyone takes pictures of their food now, puts it on Instagram, and they want to go to the place. And there's not a better, better bagel made in New York City than, than Essa Bagel. Hmm. Did you actually live in Turtle Bay? I never lived in Turtle Bay. I lived across, uh, I lived for a short time in uh, Peter Cooper, across from uh-huh. the other store, which was a nice commute. Describe the vibe of the neighborhood in Turtle Bay. What do you like about it? Oh, I just love the energy about it. This, the, from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., there's, there's, there's just an energy to it. There's, there's, you can see people in business suits. You see kids coming, you know, after school, they'll be on their little scooters coming down the street with their moms and dads. There's the police. There's um, the fire um, department not too far. You just you have, and of course, the tourists. A ton of tourists, which is very happy to mm. see them. Uh, Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Charles Wenzelberg. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com You're back, and we're back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Uh, today's neighborhood is Turtle Bay, and our guest is Charles Wenzelberg, who works and co-owns his family business, Essa Bagel, that quintessential kind of New York business. Uh, Charles, you have some social media properties, don't you? You have uh, an Instagram site? We have Instagram. You can follow us on Essa Bagel, Essa Bagel First Avenue, Essa Bagel 32nd Street, um, EssaBagel.com. And people can order your bagels overnight, I just found out during our break. How do people do that if they want? So it, people can go to goldbelly.com. We've, we've partnered with them, and we ship bagels all over the country. So 
it's a it's an amazing it, it's an amazing service when you think that you're getting fresh bagels delivered to your doorstep in the morning. We bake them at night, and they get there in the morning. Wow! So when you bake them at night, what time do they go out? Is it like a FedEx special? Uh... It's they come late in the day, so it's there's a process where we bake them and then they they have to cool. We can send them when they're hot in the in the box, um, so we let them cool off and then we ship them out. Ooh. And you also have the distinction of being the only bagel purveyor that's part of Amazon Go and Brookfield Place. So Amazon, the new Amazon Go store here in New York City, um, Brookfield Place, uh, Amazon chose Essa Bagel to be their one and only bagel in the New York area, and we're mm-hmm. very proud of that. Well, moving back to Turtle, Turtle Bay, uh, um, have you? Would you say that the neighborhood has changed at all since since you opened the store in 1993? I would say the neighborhood has gotten much taller. A lot of the buildings um, have, come, you know, the heights of the buildings now are so much higher than they were, um, and also a lot more hotels than we've had than when we first opened, which uh, you know attributes to all the the tourists that are roaming the streets and taking pictures of everything they see. I think that's true of New York in general. In fact, one of the things that you notice about Third Avenue, but I didn't realize till um, I heard about the, the whole history of the L trains, is that when the L trains were on Third Avenue, no one really built anything significant. It was all these like row houses and tenements. And it was only after uh, the L came down in 56 or 57 that developers started building big buildings because no one would want to pay high rent for uh, uh, for uh, uh, a street that was covered in trains and that, ra- and that rumbled, rumbled, rumbled. Um, what do you feel makes Turtle Bay unique as a neighborhood? That's a good question. I'm not sure what makes it unique as opposed to any other neighborhood in New York, to be quite honest. I just know that the mix of people who are there, the, I, I, you look at the Upper West Side, there's a, there's a type of person. You go to the Upper East Side, there's a type of person. You go to Harlem, you go to um, the Village, there's, there's a different vibe. In Turtle Bay, it seems like all of that has come together. You have all kinds of, 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 of personalities and people and, and dress and everything else, and they all seem to come into Estevega, which I'm very happy about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, of course, uh, Turtle Bay being a very heavy diplomatic community, uh, you, uh, it would bring different people. Do you get a lot of uh, foreigners and diplomats who come into Estevega? A ton of foreigners. In fact, for a while, we had a Japanese menu. Um, we had a student came in and said, I, I just have to make up this menu for you because so many people were struggling. Um, we used to deliver to Gracie Mansion. They had an account with us ah. for two different mayors. I don't know if the current mayor actually we delivered to. Um, so a lot of politicians would come in. I mean, I, I have seen a number of politicians and a number of celebrities have come in. Well, that's the hallmark of uh, uh, of having a great product is when politicians will not only come in, but they'll say, deliver it to the to the first residents in the city. Um, is there anything that surprises you about the neighborhood at all? You've been doing your family's been doing business there for for a couple of decades. Nothing surprises me living in New York, to be honest with you. I mean, I've seen uh, I've seen so many things happen and people just they don't even see it they just walk by um so to be honest with you nothing really surprises me i, I know that's not the greatest answer but it's the truth mm. <laughs> well i asked it and it's a it's, it's a good answer to a good question um 
As a business owner, is there anything that, that you struggle with particularly in, in Turtle Bay that's, that, that may be different from your store a little further downtown and the one across from, from Peter Cooper Village? No, I mean, we, we just, you know, in all of our stores, we just, we keep the same focus, which is customer first, customer's always right, serve the best product, make sure the customer's happy, and make sure they leave with a smile. Ah, well, that's important for any business. Um, looking into your, your, your crystal ball uh, for the neighborhood, if you have one, um, how do you see the neighborhood changing in the future? Do you have any thoughts about how, how the neighborhood may evolve, how it might change? I, you know, it's funny. I, I would, there seem to be less storefronts these days, which, I, which always surprises me because being a small business owner, I, I'm, I root for the small business. I, I prefer to see privately owned shops as opposed to more of the chain stores. Um, I won't mention any, but for us, a small business, we opened in 76. We didn't open another store until 93. And then from 93 to 2019, we don't want to expand too much. We want to keep our, our product close to our heart, and we want to be able to control it so we don't lose control, and we want to be able to make sure. So when I look at, when I, if I have a crystal ball, I hope that we still keep, small business can operate in New York. Mm-hmm. When did you open up the store on 32nd Street? It opened just a, a little over a month and a half ago, I think. Oh. April. Oh, so wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I did not know it was that recent. Congratulations. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Um, would you have any particular advice for someone who's looking to open up a business in Turtle Bay right now? I would, I would say Turtle Bay is a great place to open a business. It's, it's vibrant. There, there's a lot of um, diversity. And the only advice I'd give anybody opening a business is do your due diligence, find a good location, and find a space that works for your product. Hmm. And how long and you, have you been at your location on Third Avenue uh, since '93? In the same location, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that one's same exact spot. Hmm. Well, one question I sometimes like to ask my guests: uh, Are there any interesting or colorful neighborhood personalities that you have come to know since you've been in business there? Oh God, <laughs> we this um, it's an open-ended question, yeah, but, it, but it's, it's a really good one. <laughs> there's, a, I mean, in in the in the in the most wonderful sense of this. The greatest is when the characters, the New York characters come in, who really, they love the, 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 the camaraderie of the store and, and like want to just, they want to talk to everyone and learn about the, which food and can I taste this? And, and, and that's the greatest when somebody has, has invested so much and they want to come in. Hmm. Any particular stories <laughs> you could share with us about? Well, I, I will tell you, I mean, this, it's kind of off the beaten path, but there used to be a gentleman that would come in every Sunday morning. We would open the story, I think when we first opened it, at 6.30, and he would come in, and he would have a New York Times, and he would, um, he would wave, and he'd immediately go to the bathroom and disappear for like 20 minutes. <laughs> then he would come out and have this huge, hearty sandwich, and, and he was just jolly of a man. And one day I said to him, I said, it's kind of unique that you could, th- there's no problem, but here, you know, our bathroom, don't you, like, he said, my bathroom in my apartment is so small. <laughs> He said, I'd rather come here. <laughs> so there was a sense of uh, luxury. In your, so that's something actually that makes your place special to that customer. And of <laughs> it was course, kind of funny. And of course, in New York, space is at such a, uh, a premium. You know, I remember when uh, I lived in the East Village, uh, and it wasn't even technically a tenement. Uh, my bathroom was a water closet with a, with a three-quarter claw tub, but not even, and it was pretty damn small, I'll tell you. We used to have a judge that came in from Louisiana. He would be in every couple of months. He had some business here besides, and he would just love, he, all he wanted to do was open a business, a bagel store in Louisiana. He would come in and said, let's do this. 
Where in Louisiana was he from? Did, uh, New Orleans. In New Orleans. Yeah, did, yeah. did he ever do that? Or uh? No, he. I guess maybe he's, I, he stopped coming in. I guess maybe he wasn't coming up to New York for business much. Oh, <clears throat> unless uh, uh, he just decided to eat a lot of beignets instead of bagels. Which... Or he's having a ship him to him. Oh, okay, well, he might be doing that as well. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, Charles Wenzelberg, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your family's history with us and uh, telling us something that a lot of people don't think about, but participate in every single day, which uh, is a bagel. We probably all take it. We we probably all take it for granted, but uh, it's such an integral part of so many New Yorkers lives. And uh, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing your family's story and also talking about the neighborhood that we've talked about today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, our second guest has been Charles West Wenzelberg of Essa Bagel. They have three stores, one on 3rd Avenue and 51st Street, 51st Street, which I've been in, uh, one on 32nd Street and one on 1st Avenue. Uh, if you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram. I'd like to thank our sponsors again, the Mark Myman team, McFrieda Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent in Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant, who was also our first guest tonight, is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. And at 9 p.m., Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Talking the best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network, 